Somebody's Luggage, a collection of themed short stories by Charles Dickens and other Victorian writers. Episode 1, on the business of waitering and the luggage. Written by Charles Dickens. I am a waiter, and having come from a family of waiters, and owning at the present time five brothers who are all waiters, and likewise an only sister who was a waitress, I wish to offer a few words respecting this calling. In case confusion should arise in the public mind, which is open to confusion on many subjects, respecting what is meant or implied by the term waiter, I wish to offer an explanation. It may not be generally known that the person who goes out to wait is not a waiter. It may not be generally known that the hand who is called in as an extra at the Freemason's Tavern or the London or the Albion is not a waiter. Such hands may be took on for public dinners by the bushel, and you may know them by their breathing with difficulty when in attendance, and taking away the bottle when it is still half full. But such are not waiters. For you cannot lay down the tailoring, the shoemaking, the brokering, the greengrossing or the small fancy business. You cannot lay down those lines of life at your will and pleasure and take up waitering. You may suppose you can, but you cannot. Or you may go so far as to say you do, but you do not. It has been ascertained that what a gentleman will put up with at home, he will not bear out of doors at the Slam Jam Coffee House London or any similar establishment. Then what is the inference to be drawn respecting true waitering? You must be born to it. If you would know how born to it, then learn from the biographical experience of myself, one that is a waiter in the 61st year of his age. Your mother was married to your father, himself a distant waiter, in the profoundest secrecy. For a waitress known to be married would ruin the best of business. It is the same on the stage. Hence you are being smuggled into the pantry, and that, to add to the infliction, by an unwilling grandmother. Under the combined influence of the smells of roasts and boiled, soup and gas and malt liquors, you partook of your earliest nourishment. Your unwilling grandmother, sitting, prepared to catch you when your mother was called and dropped you. Your innocent mind, surrounded by uncongenial cruets, dirty plates, dish covers and cold gravy. Your mother calling down the pipes, instead of soothing you with nursery rhymes. Where are veals and porks? When your brothers began to appear in succession, your mother retired and haunted your father late of nights, lying in wait for him through all weathers, up the shabby court which led to the back door of the royal old dustbin, said to have been named so by George IV, where your father was head waiter. Your mother's object in those visits was of housekeeping nature, and you were set on to whistle your father out. Sometimes he came, but generally not. Come or not, however, 
all that part of his existence which was unconnected with open waitering was kept a close secret. Perhaps the attraction of this mystery, combined with your father having a damp compartment to himself behind a leaky cistern at the dustbin, caused your young mind to feel convinced that you must grow up to be a waiter too. And you did feel convinced of it. So did all your brothers, down to your sister. At this stage of your career, what was your feeling one day? when your father came home to your mother in open, broad daylight, of itself an act of madness on the part of a waiter, and took to his bed, or rather your mother and family's bed, with a single statement. Oh, my eyes is deviled kidneys. Physicians being in vain, your father expired after repeating at intervals for a day and night when gleams of reason fitfully illuminated his being. <laughs> two and two is five, and three is sixpence. You was took on from motors of benevolence at the George and Gridiron, a theatrical and supper-dining establishment. By night, you dropped asleep while standing, till you was cuffed awake, and by day you were set to polishing every individual article in the coffee room. Here, frequently hiding a heavy heart under the smart tie of your white neck anger, you picked up the rudiments of knowledge from an extra, until such time as you attained to manhood and to be the waiter you find yourself. Waiters and waitering are not generally understood. Allowance enough is not made for us. Look at what you are expected to know by a hundred gentlemen over and again. What's this, Christopher? I hear about the smashed excursion train. How are they doing at the Italian Opera, Christopher? Christopher, what are the real particulars of this business at the Yorkshire Bank? Why must a sedentary pursuited waiter be considered to be a judge of all's flesh? and to have a most tremendous interest in horse trading and racing. I am ashamed of myself for the way in which I make believe to care whether or not the grouse is strong on the wing. <laughs> much their wings or drumsticks signify anything to me, uncooked. And whether the partridge is plentiful among the turnips. <laughs> Yet you may see me, and any other waiter of my standing, leaning over a gentleman with his purse out and his bill before him, discussing these points in a confidential tone of voice, as if my happiness in life entirely depended on them. I have not mentioned our little incomes. Whether it is owing to our always carrying so much change in our right-hand pocket, or whether it is human nature, what is meant by the everlasting fable that Ed Waiters is rich. Well, Christopher, looking out for a house of your own to open, eh? Can't find a business to be disposed of on a scale as up to your resources, hmm? To such a dizzy precipice of falsehood has this misrepresentation taken wing that the well-known and highly respected old Charles, long eminent at the West Country Hotel and by some considered the father of waitering, found himself under the obligation to fall into it through so many years that his own wife believed it. And what was the consequence? 
while he was borne to his grave on the shoulders of six picked waiters, with six more for change, six more as pallbearers, all keeping step in the pouring rain without a dry eye visible, and a concourse of mourners only inferior to royalty. His pantry and lodgings was being ransacked, high and low for property, and none was found. Such, however, is the force of this universal libel that the widow of old Charles, at the present hour an inmate of the almshouses of the Court Cutters Company in Blue Anchor Road, expects his ordered wealth to be found hourly. (sighs) And so to the present. At a momentous period of my life when I was off, with a dining house that shall be nameless, I was casting about what to do next. And then it were that proposals were made on behalf of my present establishment, and I entered a new career. We are a bed business and a coffee room business. We are not a general dining business, nor do we wish it. We are a private room or family business also, but coffee room principle in what I call the good old-fashioned style. That is, for whatever you want, down to a wafer, you must be only and solely dependent on the head waiter. You must put yourself a newborn child into his hands. There is no other way in which a business untainted with continental vice can be conducted. It were bootless to add that if languages is required to be jabbered and English is not good enough, then both families and gentlemen had better go somewhere else. When I began to settle down in this right principled and well-conducted house, I noticed under the bed in number 24B, which is up at angle off the staircase and usually put off on the lowly-minded, a heap of things in a corner. You wish to see me, Mr Christopher? Yes, Mrs Pratchett. What are them things in 24B? Somebody's luggage. Whose luggage? Law. Being, it might be right to mention, a female of some pertness, though acquainted with her business, I gave Mrs Pratchett so distinctly to understand my decision. A head waiter must be either head or tail. He must be at one extremity or the other of the social scale. He cannot be at the waist of it or anywhere else but the extremities. Let not inconsistency be suspected on account of my mentioning Mrs Pratchett as Mrs and having formally remarked that a waitress must not be married. Mrs Pratchett was not a waitress but a chambermaid. Now, a chambermaid may be married. It is to be noted, however, that Mr Pratchett is believed to be in Australia, and his address there is supposedly the bush. Law! How should I know? For instance, who is somebody? I give you my sacred honour, Mr Christopher, that I haven't the faintest notion. Then you never saw him? Nor yet, nor yet any servant in this house has... 
all have been changed, Mr Christopher, within five years, and somebody left his luggage here before then. Further investigations led to the disclosure that there was a bill against this luggage to the amount of £2.16 and six. It had been lying under the bedstead of 24B for over six years. I don't know why... When do we know why? But this luggage laid heavily on my mind. I felt a wondering about somebody and what he had been up to. I couldn't satisfy my thoughts why he should leave so much luggage against so small a bill. I had the luggage out within a day or two and turned it over. It was all very dusty and fluey. I had our porter up to get under the bed and fetch it out. (coughs) And though he habitually wallows in dust, swims in it from morning till night, it made him sneeze again and again. The luggage so got the better of me that instead of having it put back when it was well dusted, I had it carried into one of my places downstairs. There, from time to time... I stared at it and stared at it till it seemed to grow big and grow little and come forward at me and retreat again and go through all manner of performances resembling intoxication. When this had lasted weeks, I may say months and not be far out, I one day thought of asking Miss Martin, the young lady at the bar as makes out our bills, for the particulars of the £2.16 and 6. As well as the detail of the bill, there was a memo saying that he went out after dinner, directing his luggage to be ready when he called for it. He never called. So far from throwing a light on the subject, this bill appeared to me to involve it in a yet more lurid halo, I speculated it over with the mistress of the establishment. The luggage was advertised in the master's time to be sold after a certain date to pay expenses, but no further steps were taken. I may here remark that the mistress is a widow in her fourth year, the master being possessed of one of those unfortunate constitutions in which spirits turn to water and rises in the unfortunate victim. My speculating over it not then only, but repeatedly thereafter, eventually led up to consequences. Christopher, I'm going to make you a handsome offer. Oh, put a name to it, Mum. If this should meet her eye, a lovely blue. May she not take it ill my mentioning that if I had been eight or ten years younger, I would have done as much by her in the offering department. Look here, Christopher. Run over the articles of somebody's luggage. You've got it all by heart, I know. A black portmanteau, ma'am. A black bag, a desk, a dressing case, a brown paper parcel, a hat box and an umbrella strapped to a walking stick. All just as they were left. Nothing opened, nothing tampered with. You're right, ma'am. All locked but the brown paper parcel, and that sealed. Come, Christopher, pay me somebody's bill, and you can have somebody's luggage. Hmm. It mayn't be worth the money, 
That's a lottery. She taps the open book that lays upon the desk. She has a pretty made hand, to be sure. Then she folds her arms on the book. It ain't her hands alone that's pretty made. The observation extends right up her arm. Won't you venture a two pounds, sixteen shillings and sixpence in the lottery? (laughs) Why, there's no blanks. You must win. All prizes in this lottery. To make short of it, Miss Martin and Mrs Pratchett come round me. And the mistress, she was completely round me already. And all the women in the house come round me. And if it had been sixteen pound and two instead of two and sixteen, I should have thought myself well out of it. For what can you do when they do come round you? So I paid the money down. (laughs) But I turned the tables on them regularly when I said, Ladies, my family name is Bluebeard and I'm going to open somebody's luggage all alone in the secret chamber and not a female eye catches sight of the contents. What I still look at most, in connection with that luggage, is the extraordinary quantity of writing paper, and all written on. And he had crumpled up this writing of his everywhere, in every part and parcel of his luggage. There was writing in his dressing case, in his boots, amongst his shaving tackle, and in his hat box. His clothes wasn't bad, what there was of them. I parted with these well enough to a second-hand dealer not far from St Clement's Danes Church in the Strand. The same party bought the rest of his luggage in one lot. These transactions brought me home, and indeed more than home, for they left a goodish profit on the original investment. And now there remained the writings. He was a smeary writer, and wrote in a dreadful bad hand, Utterly regardless of ink, he lavished it on every undeserving object. On his clothes, desk, hat, the handle of his toothbrush, even his umbrella. Ink was found freely on the coffee room carpet by number four table and two blots was on his restless couch. He had put no headings to any of his writings. In some cases, such as his boots, he would appear to have hid the writings, thereby involving his style in greater obscurity. But his boots was at least pairs, and no two of his writings can put in any claim to be so regarded. So here now follows the writings what was found, beginning with those discovered by me in his boots. And so the stories of somebody's luggage begin. In the next episode, the first tale takes us to France and the trials and tribulations of an Englishman abroad. In episode one of Somebody's Luggage, Mr Christopher was played by Mike Ayres, Jane Pulford was the mistress and S.J. Vant became Mrs Pratchett. 
Mark Smith and Jim Newberry were the gentlemen, with all other parts played by members of this cast. The episode was adapted, produced and directed by Jim Newberry, with all sound engineering and effects provided by the expertise of Robbie Burgess. It is a joint venture between Revenge FM and Uptick Productions.